0: Hi, I'm Steve Barlow. This is the Humanised Workforce Future You podcast, where we talk about perceptions of the future, issues we need to be aware of, and their role in a rapidly changing work and life environment. Hi,
1: I'm Craig Safin. Day by day, we are all learning to live with the impact technology, AI, and changing health and social conditions have on our lives. The Humanised Workforce Future You podcast series Thinks the future is bright and something to look forward to.
0: Welcome to the Humanized Workforce Future You podcast. I'm Steve Barlow. And as always, I'm joined by Craig Saffin. Welcome here today, Craig.
1: Hi, Steve. Lovely to see you again. And I'm really excited about our discussion with Graham today. So,
0: yeah. So, today we've got as our guest Dr. Graham Kenny. So, welcome, Graham, to our little podcast. thanks very
1: much for the
2: invitation, Craig and Steve. I'm looking forward to it. No worries. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background,
0: uh, Graham, and what you do?
2: Uh, Yeah, okay. So uh, what I do is, as a strategy consultant, uh, help organisations, you know, their executive teams and others outside the executive group, uh, go through, look at their industry, do some analysis of that industry, and then come up with a plan of how they're going to cope with uh, the changes and trends that are occurring in the industry. So that's that's the basic uh, process. So I become a facilitator, not an expert. I don't go in there and tell them what they should do, but lead them through a process whereby the client is able to identify where they need to go. And there's two levels of this. There's the organisation level, which is the positioning of the organisation against the competition and there's the second part of it, which is the execution part, which is the actions that need to be undertaken in order to implement those positions, and that's basically uh, the remit. The, the <laughs> basically what I do with with clients.
1: Uh, th- thanks very much, Graham. That's uh, pretty fascinating, but I think you're you're being incredibly uh, modest, uh, like a lot of people we have on here who. have Achieved a lot. Um, I think you're being a bit modest. Can can you step us back a bit in time, of what led you to doing this sort of consultancy? You've got a you've got a PhD, and you've had a lot, obviously, had a lot of uh, business experience. So, can you give us a little bit more? Uh, what led you to uh, being so fascinated and passionate about uh, stra- strategic planning?
2: Yes. Well, actually, um, mm-hmm. what happened was I under I started that PhD some years ago, the University of New South Wales uh and uh look I, I, it's one of those i really i was really fascinated by doing the phd because you've got an opportunity to immerse yourself in a topic and you could do that 24 7. and i did that over a period of three years full time um and i'd come home excited by the articles that i'd found and you know sitting down and looking at all that it was i still get the same buzz i still get the same buzz what this was the about, topic a lot of years later. Uh, when I finished the PhD, I... Well, during the PhD, I was teaching part-time at UTS. Yep. Finished, and then, and then started at UTS. And then I ended up getting a visiting research fellowship to the University of Bradford Management Centre in the UK, then went to Canada and the US. I was teaching in universities there for four years, and then came back, and at that time... I wanted to break from academia. I'd been in it for 13 years, and I had the great opportunity to be a CEO of a business that made trusses and frames for houses. Having an engineering background way, way back was handy. Uh, and uh, we turned that business around and sold it. And then from then on, I was then moved into consulting full time.
1: Okay. Wow, that was a very um, interesting self-introduction. I don't think we've had one like that, have we, Steve? So, <laughs> so, 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 uh, so you had a, you've basically had thirteen years of thirteen a- years academic, as an academic, academic, but you've done it on three or four continents, and um, and uh, as part of that, you did a PhD and you taught. And then you came back and just for a slight sea change, you didn't need a pandemic to spur you on. You became the CEO of a trusses and frames company. Um, so well, uh, I
2: should say that I had some mm. executive experience before I undertook the PhD. So, And I can also say that after I finished with the truss and frame company, I then went, and while, when I was consulting, I then went back into the academic field not in terms of teaching, but in terms of attending international conferences. So we got to go to places like Prague and Denmark and Sweden and uh, Canada and the US again. Uh, So look at, and then, so I've kept those contacts. In fact, I've got an email from someone yesterday from the US, we were talking about what's happening in terms of the field of strategy. So I've now got sort of those tentacles still in the academic field. Hmm. very much with my feet in the practice side of things. Hmm. And of course, what I'm trying to do is to, through the Harvard Business Review and the writing of the Harvard Business Review, get people thinking about the field differently. I've written five books, but the, the last book was a few years ago, and now I'm concentrating on pieces for the Harvard
1: Business Review. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so you're going full circle back to the academic piece, but while you're doing your consultancy. So that's um.
2: Well, yes, but again, you know, it's it's like uh, I'm not being an ac- I'm not an academic. I want to no, make that no. very
1: clear. No, I understand the definition is very strict, especially. <laughs> but I've got, academic, so. I've got I've
2: got I've got I've got the feet. I've got the I've got the foundation. Put it that way. So oh, if okay. someone says to me, "Do you um, know this?" I'd be very surprised if I hadn't read it. No, we'll I, see
1: I, now. I get that you've got the foundation. That's a, quite impressive. So, can I take you to your days as a CEO of a trusses and frames company? And you said you grew the business. It was a turnaround, and then you were able to sell it. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so I was yeah. not.
2: I didn't own it. I was bought mm. in.
1: You were the CEO. Uh, it
2: was a lucky break, really, because it really set me up for everything. Since. Sounds like an
1: amazing opportunity. Can you can you walk us through uh, how you were able to do? And achieve so much in that business? Because I think uh, the, the the mechanisms behind that probably laid a lot of practical foundations for you uh, to, uh, to what you're doing at the moment.
2: You're exactly right there. Um, look, I think in any turnaround situation, you're juggling two pieces. Mm. One is cost containment, and the other one is business development. So in the cost containment side, we had to make sure that we didn't run parts of the business that weren't profitable. Mm. And that happens in a lot of businesses. You look Mm. at it and you think, well, why are we milling that timber if we can buy the timber pre-cut? So we did an analysis and we worked out that we'd better buying the timber pre-cut to make Mm. into trusses and primes than milling it ourselves. Mm. See, that's the cost containment part. Mm. The business development part was then how do we expand what we're doing and bring in more customers, because these are contract builders. We're not talking about mums and dads here. We're talking Mm. about A.V. Jennings and the big building companies. Mm. So we'd have contracts with them to supply certain models of of houses. They might have a Cambridge. They might have an Oxford. They might Mm. have whatever the the, the particular model is. So we'd contract to do that. Uh, And then there's a case of how do we expand the business that way? But Mm. I could tell you this, that I really didn't... In terms of what I'm doing now, I didn't appreciate till after I left the business, and mm. that became what I call the, our strategic factor system, which is the way in which you analyze uh, an organization to develop competitive advantage. Mm.
1: So I, I took a punt, and I, I was hoping that it would lead that way our discussion. So I, I figured that uh, everyone's had that who's had that practical experience sort of comes out with uh, not an epiphany, but uh, certainly. Uh, a clearer way on the way things should be done. So, can you can you tell us a little bit about those uh, learning, or I don't I like the word learnings, but the things you learned uh, while you were the CEO and took away from that uh, experience? how how that is being used in your consultancy business now because you talked about the the, um, organisation versus the competitor and you also talked about um, the execution and the actions, so two two major parts of strategic planning. Um, So can you talk to us about the influence that your CEO experiences had on that methodology?
2: Yes. uh, Well, actually, uh, it really came about this way. When I started running the public Seminars, mm. which were advertised in the company director and other magazines. Um, I thought I needed something simple to illustrate what competitive advantage was about, mm. and I chose a convenience store as my example. But then I thought back to what really took place in the the timber company, and I thought, well, what was happening there? A lot of the time, we're inside the organisation working on processes and methods, mm. and the customers on the outside looking from across the street. And I use that as an example of, you know, look, we've got to get across the street another in order to understand what we need to be doing. Uh, I don't say doing, I mean, positioning ourselves as an organization, we can't really see that once we're inside. So it became a Uh, then a case of looking from the outside in. And I use that phrase and have been using that phrase for, or that term for a long time. And so looking outside in, we then start to see the whole business completely differently. And that's true for a convenience store. So I said to people at the sessions, okay, so how do you decide to choose one convenience store over another? Which is, Mm -hmm. how do you decide as a builder to choose one Supplier, of trusses and frames over another. Hmm. Now, in, in the case of a convenience store, we can all do it. It's price, location, hours of operation, customer service, product range. There's six of them. Hmm. and But I do that now for every key stakeholder group. Okay. And if people aren't doing that, then they're going to struggle with this whole area. And once you do it, you say, well, okay, so what are employees looking for from our organisation? Why would someone want to join our organisation? And these terms, we we came up with a term called strategic factors. Mm -hmm. You position yourself on these factors in order to have competitive advantage. See, this makes it all so clear and simple. And once you then go into that, in other words, let's look at it from the stakeholder's point of view. It doesn't matter whether suppliers, investors, employees, or, or customers or even consumers which are further down the track if you're, say, providing goods to Woolworths, mm. you've then got consumers further down. You've got to understand what are they looking for from an organisation like ours? What is the products? What's the range? What's the quality? And so on. And that is, when you think about it, it's quite a simple way to approach it all, but a lot of people get lost in the internal processes of an organisation, and then they turn out strategic plans that aren't strategic.
1: Mm. Yeah, because they're, they're sort of like an echo chamber inside, aren't they, or something? What, what, with your outside-in piece, I'm uh, very interested in that. Is that uh, something that's come into the uh, modern vernacular, um, is the CX thing? Is is outside-in, is that related to CX, do you think? I mean, CX being customer experience. Yes, yeah. Oh, this
2: There's a lot of around... You know, customer experience and understanding. It's it, it's not always a simple process. I mean, for, no. in some cases, it's particularly branded goods, fashion goods, mm. image building goods. There's quite a lot of psychology in it as well. Oh, but okay. When you're so looking at really builders okay. and saying, "Okay, how do I choose one firm over another?" It's it's a pretty rational process, and so on. I think. So I think also in terms of. Choosing a convenience store—is it on the road on the way home, and so on? Was the guy rude to me? Uh, did they have what I want? But when you get down to some other things, I was reading something yesterday in a in a magazine. They're talking about getting below that sort of level of okay, which which of these items is important to you, And then to start to understand the psychology of how people attach certain emotions. Ah the yeah. things, okay, so this becomes an emotional thing, yeah I'm emotionally driven by this brand yeah it it it's you know it's uh its it's part of my self image so there are some products, so again, different methods for different things, but if you're selling cosmetics, there's another level of you know what's really what are people passionate about,
1: yeah. Yeah, the branding. You're either a brand person or you're not. In some ways, my in my experience, some people are just so passionate and attach themselves to brands that helps identify them and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's very interesting. The strategic factors that you mentioned. Uh, can you do you have how many? Uh, is there a list of those, or is there a number of those, or are there the main strategic factors that you that? Import?
2: There is. Yeah, I don't come into any any organisation, Craig, with a list. Yeah, go ahead. uh It's a case case of them thinking this through. Mm. Uh, so there's usually about half a dozen. And in fact, if there's more than half a dozen, you can usually find a way to reduce them because mm. they've become redundant. Someone might say, for example, with employees, the strategic factor is promotional opportunities. And then they'll say, uh, well, it's also empowerment. And right. you think, well, is this the is this just two facets of the same thing? Yes. Um, someone might say working conditions and job design, where you say, well, so you have to sort of think this through a bit to come down with about half a dozen that really, uh, you know, summarize the situation. Then you've got to get the definition right. And this is where it becomes tricky, because as I say to managers, whose definition can't be yours, it's got to be theirs. So it's got to be the customer's definition of service, because if you take the manager's definition of service, it may not correspond with what the customers think. Yes. And so getting in the customer's shoes is important to then being able to position yourself to have advantage. Mm. And uh, so there's a process there, that some research that needs to be done, series of interviews, um, but also looking at what people actually do as against say they do. Uh, so there's, there's you know, a bit of work to be done over there. But usually interviews will, uh, on in most cases, bring out what it is they're looking for from a, a company like a Trust and frame manufacturer. For example, they might say, uh, Look, when I ring up, I want someone to take ownership of the problem. I don't want to be shunted around the office right. to find out someone that can fix this. And also, when I call up and ask a technical question, I need someone to be able to address it. Mm. So you think, Well, we're not doing half of that. Right.
1: Yeah, the uh, the customer experience like that. Yeah, when especially when you have a problem, uh, some companies I deal with are just amazing, and then others are just woeful. So, one thing <laughs> yeah. I one thing that comes to mind while you're talking about that is that when you're putting you doing this analysis from the uh, looking at uh, defining the strategic factors for each client, I imagine that from what you've just said is that you also get a better understanding of your competitors and the competitive landscape for your industry as well. Do you?
2: Yes, and that's right because when you are now talking to, say, for example, a, a, a customer that's uh, going back to the trust and frame business, they'll say, you know, this competitor does this, why don't you do that?
1: Mm.
2: So it's, it's and it's really, and people think, oh, how many, how many of these do I have to do? And the answer is 12. <laughs> the magic number. Why is it you 12? You don't need. And why 12? Because mm. usually when you go through that process, after a while, the material will be repeated. Oh. And as soon as it's repeated, you know that you've got to the bottom of the well. You've got the landscape covered. Yeah. yeah. You don't need to go on and hear the same stuff for another 20 interviews, unless they're
1: <laughs> paying you by the hour. Okay. Then you do it. Then you want to do it. Yeah. So, um, so when, okay, I want to just uh, change pace a little bit. So this is, I think we've got a, uh, we're starting to get an idea. Obviously in this short uh, discussion, we can't get... Uh, Dig too much into your extensive experience, but uh, in the last three three years, we've seen dramatic change in two areas in the way business is done. One one is with uh, technology, uh, which has developed uh, very rapidly in the way people conduct business uh, in the last three years, especially I think. And then the second thing is the the influence of the on the technology and also the way people work from the pandemic. So, can you? enlighten us a little bit about how those two things, the technology and the pandemic and the way people are working now has uh has changed or influenced, if at all, the strategic approaches you have with companies?
2: Um now biotechnology, I, I assume you're talking about the sort of technology we're using here. It's part of the so how we
1: collaborate, how we collaborate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be, uh, for example, a lot of people are using things like Slack or, uh, and they're using uh, project management, things like Trello and stuff like that, but but much more pervasive into business than it was, say, three years ago and partly because of the way people are working now. Yeah, from what
2: I've read, and a lot of this is about what I've read about uh, the way this has changed, Um now there's this hybrid approach yes and the hybrid approach is you know three days in the office two not not in the office yes um there's also a question about people getting lonely in Mm. these circumstances as well i was reading that the other day about how you're coping with loneliness um i just think it's a great thing uh i think for an organization and think about again competitive advantage if you can provide more of that flexibility than someone else then you you're able to attract staff. On the other hand, if staff want to have more contact.
1: Mm. uh,
2: So that's, again, another good example, I think, Craig, of not presuming anything about staff. Have a chat to them, find out who wants what, how it suits them, and then build it around that. For the benefit of the organisation, at the end of the day, it's about what you're getting from the staff but you won't get anything from the staff if you're not satisfying their needs. It's an exchange. It's a transaction. So you want productivity and innovation as a company. That's what yeah. you're driving for. And you, you're going to do that, in this case, by having flexible arrangements. It's going to make management a lot more difficult, of course, you're not just sort of clocking in and clocking out. Sure, yeah. uh, but um, I think it, it, it it'll be a great thing for innovation I think the productivity question is um, a bit out open, but I was really interested to see last year that KPMG, the big KPMG firm, its revenue went up, I think it was 16 or 19% in the last year. Now, they have people working remotely all over Australia. I know some, you know, they're working from home five days a week, but the revenue for the business went up. Yes. So, you know, something's working. The clients aren't saying the quality of the work's lousy, the quality of the work's not on time. So I thought that was a very interesting stat.
1: Yeah, I think the... Uh, the I heard a report from Microsoft the other day who can track, you know, people when they're using their desktop and so on, and there used to be just two spikes of um, when people would be uh, working at their PC, but now there are three. Actually, uh, to back up what you're saying, the people... Maybe it's not a good thing, is that people are working uh, longer actually. So, right. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's been one of the things. But going back to you, just to finish up, sorry, Steve, I just want one more question. And that is the, the, um, going back to your trust example, your, your yes. trust experience. Uh, I have some, uh, comf- uh, clients in, um, who are in the manufacturing industry as well. And during the pandemic, they, they had their people that had to come in. So, whether you're a boiler maker or a carpenter or a trust maker or whatever, you have to, you can't do it at home. Uh, and and then, but you do have workers that can work at home, and so that that sort of approach to uh, work, managing your business or growing the business that that has been uh, quite a change for some businesses. Not everyone is a knowledge worker, are they?
2: No, that's right. And I've got another client who, or a client, I should say, that uh, makes uh, pharmaceuticals for animals, right? Medicines for animals, they say. Yes, uh, you know the sort of thing: uh, horses, cats, dogs, and so yeah. on. Now, of course, that has to be packaged, processed, uh, and so on in the factory. And those people can't work remotely, Mm -hmm. whereas the office staff can. Now, the interesting challenge here is, as a CEO, how do you manage the people who are clocking in basically every day? And they look around and they say, well, there's no one up there in the office. (laughs) What are they doing? So that's a challenge to make sure that the people who are there on the shop floor know that the office people are working even though they're not, uh, you know, present. Yeah, Stephen, there I, is that thing about presenteeism. I'm always interested in that word. Presenteeism. Be there but not be there.
1: Yeah. The challenges. Steve and I've covered this in previous interviews about the CEOs bringing their people together and keeping them together when they're actually not actually physically present. Is very-
2: yeah, so you have to have those arrangements whereby you come together, have a meeting, mm-hmm. have a discussion, so they do know that the people who aren't there are engaged. Sure. Otherwise, there's a tendency for the ones that are manufacturing to think, "Why are we
1: flogging ourselves to death down here?" Thanks very much, Graham. Uh, Steve.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was fantastic, uh, Graham. I just want to bring together for our listeners a few points that I kind of uh, high-level uh, summary of it, I guess, and three three kind of values that I that I derived from what you said. Firstly, the value of self-development, the value of actually doing the hard yards of, of uh, getting experience, getting education, learning deeply, learning broadly, piecing together bits and pieces of learning so that you've got a strong foundation from which to emerge into the business world, that you've got to do the work on yourself if you want to really leverage that and and be able to bring it to uh, to to the to the business place, the second thing that I got out of it was the value of multiple perspectives. And uh, you talked about um, you know looking from the outside in, of of drilling down to find out how do how does this look to other people, what do they see, what does it mean to them, what do they want. And uh, that these multiple perspectives allow you to uh, align these strategic factors so that you get the competitive advantage that you're looking for. And uh, and then the third thing was really the the value of the transaction that happens between people within the organization and within the broad reach of the organization, that it's Everybody's sort of got to contribute, but everybody's got to get out of out of it what they're looking for as well. And there needs to be this balance, this fairness of of everybody kind of working together, but uh delivering, but also receiving from the organization and from what it's got to offer. And that when you get these three areas right, then um good things happen.
2: Yeah. And- exactly. Mm. A virtuous circle, I called it the other day. And I think strategic planning, there's a lot of debates about whether strategic planning produces strategy. But uh, it, like anything, it can be done badly. But the real thing about strategic planning is how do we get those connections between us and those stakeholders in such a way that they reinforce each other and produce a virtuous circle? Mm. Now, if you approach strategic planning that way, people say, well, now I know what it's about. How do we get a harmonious relationship with employees that drives harmonious relationships with suppliers? Both of those relationships drive results for customers and eventually the investors get the benefit. Now, if you look at it in that systemic way, mm. systems view, that's when you start to really know what strategic planning is about. But if you just go in there with the idea that a strategic plan is a marketing plan, you're going to be disappointed.
1: Mm. It's a fantastic uh, point to end on. I really appreciate uh, you sharing so much with us, Graeme. Great insights. Much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thanks very
2: much, And the, Craig. Those questions were fantastic. Well done. <laughs> Thank,
0: you. Right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Humanised Workforce Future You. Please leave a rating or review for the series on the medium where you source your podcasts. The
1: transcripts for today's podcast can be found on craigsaffin.com, that's C-R-A-I-G-S-A-P-H-I-N.com. Please subscribe to the series so you don't miss out on the interviews or the future podcasts.